Lost and Sound is proudly sponsored by Audio-Technica. Audio-Technica are a global but still family-run company that make headphones, turntables, cartridges, microphones, studio-quality yet affordable products because they believe that high-quality audio should be accessible to all. I'm speaking to you right now wearing their M50X headphones. They're for the studio, they're for every day. I like to wear them when I'm on the move. That's just how I am. But whatever way you like to listen, head on over to audiotechnica.com to check out all of their range of stuff. How are you doing? I hope you're good. Welcome back to Lost and Sound. I'm Paul Hamford. I'm your host. I'm a writer and author based in Berlin, where I'm speaking to you now from. And if you're new to the show, this is the show where each episode I have conversations with the musical innovators, the outsiders, the mavericks, the artists that do their own unique thing. And we talk about life and the things that inspire us to make the things that we make. Previous guests have included Peaches, Jim O'Rourke, Chili Gonzalez, Letitia Sadier, Ghost Poet, Cozy Funny Tootie, Nightmares on Wax, and First and More. And today, you're going to hear a conversation I had with Daniel Miller and Gareth Jones, two legends. Legends in their own right, but occasionally they come together and they become sunroof. Yes, you're going to hear that coming up in a few minutes. And my book, Coming to Berlin, is available now on Velocity Press or in specialist bookshops. Okay, so I'm coming to you today on May the 2nd, May the 2nd. And I'm I'm sat in a little platz near where I live. Um, the platz is called Bodenplatz. And... Um, yes, I've just got back from two days without internet connection um, in the middle of of Brandenburg, right by the Polish border. Um, May the first, I, I, in Berlin. If you're not in Berlin, if you if you don't know Berlin too well, is a is a massive bank holiday, and it's it's something that has gone from being like very very connected to protest, a huge day of protest, to a kind of party day. And now we're in this kind of stage where it is very, 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 very party. Everything just goes really crazy. And I think the first couple of years I came here, that that was really awesome. But living in a city where you can party whenever you want, we got the best clubs in the world. Sorry, Ibiza, but you're wrong, Ibiza. We got the best clubs in the world. We got, and so the idea of going out at some crazy hyped up weekend when everyone is coming into town is is just feels like no 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 so i needed oxygen uh uh i went to brandenburg i went sort of right by the polish border had an amazing time had barbecue uh did forest bathing had no internet reception for a couple of days and and now i'm back in berlin i had a, i had a beautiful Sudanese lunch and I'm speaking to you right now where you're about to hear an interview I did with Sunroof aka Daniel Miller and Gareth Jones it's their improvised project they're two people who have been responsible in various ways for helping birth some of the key electronic records of the last 40 years actually when I say electronic records I don't just mean the records but they, they've both in their own individual and coming together ways helped birth, I don't know, a vibe, a feeling, a vibe, something with electronic music that didn't exist beforehand has come out through them. Miller set up Mute Records. Mute Records is his. He set that up initially to release his single under the name The Normal. You know it, Warm Leverette, yes. 
And in the years since, Mute have become a label as distinctive as 4AD, as Warp, a, a label that everything on it, no matter how different and, and unconnected each each release, each artist is, there's something that connects them together. And I think it's, it's something about Daniel's genius at pulling people together, finding finding something, finding something. It's like going around someone's house and although every object in their house might come from a different place, it's got the same kind of love in it, the same sort of like aesthetic, a deep love. And, and Gareth, I mean, well, what can you say about Gareth? Producer, engineer, he's been responsible for some of, of the most forward-thinking music of the last 40 years the Depeche Mode albums the Depeche Mode albums that everyone loves from the early 80s that's him Erasure Wire Einstein Neubauten how did I say that today did I get a little bit better at pronouncing that Clinic Interpol Crime and the City Solution Grizzly Bear just some of the artists that they've produced and they've had a 40-year friendship Gareth and Daniel they both met when they were working on Depeche Mode's 1983 album, Construction Time, again. Um, and apparently they would start improvising uh, in the evening, just the two of them on modular equipment. This kind of carried on for about 40 years, this kind of working relationship they had, working on projects for other artists. And then every now and then getting together and doing these improvs. Um, now what we've got is uh, the project Sunroof, which has, has been basically around for 40 years, but they've only just released their second album, Electronic Music Improvisations Volume 2. It came out on 17th of February, which um, was on the Parallel Series label, which is connected with Mute. Um, I actually saw them about two or three weeks ago. They came to Berlin. They played in this venue, uh, Silent Green, which is a former morgue. And they sit on stage and, and they, they play these modular racks, these synths. And they, they, they have this kind of vibe about them where there's these two chaps and they've known each other for like for over 40 years now. And they look like two chess two chess masters deeply locked into a chess tournament but it's modular synths making awesome frequencies instead and and instead of like being in competition it's like it's like they're both sort of simultaneously raising each other raising each other by like what one of them is doing on one sound to what another one is doing on the other sound they're sort of bringing up to this great height um yeah it was a great gig the album's really really amazing as well um it was a really fascinating conversation eagle-eared listeners may remember that daniel has actually appeared on the, sh the show before he was in episode number three back back in 2018 almost fucking five years ago would you believe it anyway i'm really waffling on got the interview to play you i hope you're having a really fucking lovely day and chat to you soon enjoy the interview you in berlin paul I am, thanks. Yeah, I'm. Uh, um, in, I'm in Neukölln. The nearest U-Bahn is Neukölln, actually. Okay. Um, it's snowing today, so I don't know how well you can see. Oh yeah, beautiful Hinterhof with snow. Totally, totally, and a big blank wall over there as well. Yeah, just crying <laughs> out for someone to paint it. <laughs> definitely definitely well probably one of the only non-graffitied spots in in the city actually yeah so. it's going to be beautiful in spring there's a massive tree in the Hof, yeah it does so, get really nice yeah yeah, yeah. Um, where is this your studio behind you mm -hmm. gareth yeah yeah i'm in shoreditch yeah oh amazing so we, we we've swapped areas not in the same time frame but in you know at some point in history i that was where i used to live oh did you yeah 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 well, kind of Bethnal Green area. And, okay, yeah. And yeah, I don't live here. I just, I rent a workspace here. So yeah. this feels like my spot somehow. It's my spot. <laughs> it's, it's nice when a, when a spot feels right, I imagine. Yeah. And I'm in psychogeography. I don't know what's happened. Here I am. <laughs> in fact, um, I've, I didn't first meet Daniel, but I first started working with Daniel just around the corner in, in the garden studio, uh, uh, which John Fox owned uh, mm -hmm. at that time, which is where we uh, uh, we started working together in the studio. Ah, yeah. okay. Now, now a pret-a-manger. Now a pret-a-manger, <laughs> serving delicious coffee. 
Excellent, excellent. Excellent. Do you get like a kind of a nostalgia when you walk past places that aren't there anymore? I try to avoid nostalgia, really. Uh, you know, it's so easy to to uh, to to look back in fondness at the good old days, mm. but I try not to. <laughs> I try not to, but, but I can't help it sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel, uh, what, what kind of things kind of catch you in those moments? Oh, well, I mean, if we're talking about the garden studio, you know, lots of good memories of weird sampling, weird instruments, working on, you know, great songs the band have written, trying to find somewhere to park that wouldn't where the car wouldn't get broken into. Those kind of nice things, you know. <laughs> and, and it's and interesting. And lots of, uh, lots so, of uh, vegetarian Indian takeaways. Amazing. <laughs> I, th I think, um, you know, it's, it's funny to sort of mention nostalgia because for, for both of you is such sort of, always have such kind of forward thinking mentalities in terms of the music you do and the music you're involved in. Um, how important is that sort of relationship for you to, to keep moving forward in it, in itself? Is, is it an actual thing or is it sort of something that's more like just innately part of your characters, do you think? Well, I guess it must be innately part of our characters, but I think, Working with electronic music, which we've done for so so many years, I think that's a naturally you know you naturally want to push forward with that and experiment mm -hmm. and try new things and it and, and because it's so open to to those kind of experiments and um, constantly trying to find new new ways of doing things, new sounds, new, new and now with Gareth, new ways of collaborating again mm -hmm. <laughs> and. Also, because we work with uh, uh, modular uh, since at the moment, uh, almost exclusively uh, in, in sunroof, uh, of course, we our racks change all the time, which, which naturally uh, promotes a, 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 a new approach. You know, but, um, I think we're, we're both not shy. Uh, as, as we've assembled more modules in our life, we're not shy of... Of being inspired by Andreas Schneider and taking a bunch of modules for the particular gig that we're working on, you know. Mm. Um, so I think that's fair, isn't it, Dan? Are, are you, are you, both yeah, of our rats seem to change all the time. I, funnily enough, I just re—I put some old modules into my rack just yesterday, and it's like it's great because it's like being in front of a new instrument, you know. I mean, it's a synthesizer, kind of. <laughs> But it's a completely a completely different instrument, and that's really inspiring. So the possibilities of what you don't know are always quite interesting to explore. Yeah, possibilities of what we don't know, but obviously, you know, not trying not to repeat ourselves in every, mm. not just in the work we do together, but in in you know all the kind of music that we're involved with. You know, trying to find new ways that, that not just for the sake of it, but also because it makes it more interesting for the outcome as well as the process. Yeah, it, it, I always kind of wonder what, like when say like a band like the Rolling Stones who've been doing Satisfaction for 60 years, how they must how they must find a kind of a way in to do that or whether it just stops being a way in for them. It's just an automatic response. Yeah, I've got no idea. But I think one of the, one of the I guess for the, a band like the Rolling Stones or big bands like that, you know they have the there's the relationship with the audience, which is all, mm. always different and 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 can be really special. You know as well. I think that's that's. I mean, I, I can't say can't speak for Mick or Keith, but um, that's definitely the bands that I know who are who are at a, at a high level. Mm. It's of course it's about the interaction with the audience is different every night, even if the music is is similar. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so uh, Electronic uh, Music Improvisations Volume 2 is coming out and it's the follow-up to Electronic Music Improvisations Volume 1. What do you get as artists yourself from improvising that you don't get from making music that is, you know, ha has sort of songwriting considerations in, in, in their developments? Well, uh, one crucial thing... I feel is that we get stuff finished, uh, which is a we, we, this is sunroof is a very important part of my life, but it's not my day job. 
Uh, and and in my day job, I'm used to getting stuff finished. But but it, 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 I think one of the things that happened with the Sunroof Manifesto when we hit on continuing with our improvisation experiments that we started over 40 years ago was the realization that this was a way to complete work. Uh, it's not, you know, obviously we select from the improvisations that we do. We don't put them all on the record, but more or less we pick the ones that speak to us mm -hmm. uh, and, yeah. and, that, and, and because there's no post-production and there's no editing and there's no mixing really, uh, other than a, a simple semi-mastering kind of approach, uh, it fits into our busy schedules. And the other, I, I, just before I pass over to Daniel, I, I thought about this after our, we're obviously working on volume three at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I realized after our last session that, and I, I think it's probably true for both of us, I have no idea what I'm going to do it's when we're improvising we always start with nothing patched and and but beyond that i don't have a concept of what i'm going to do and i constantly because there are so many variables i'm constantly making something new for me uh, uh, and and surprising for me which yeah. is really a, a great personal experience that i'm I hope some of that energy shares with the listening public you know and, and also because in the you know versus kind of structured songs it's full of surprises mm. it's kind of uh it's just a very different approach you know when you're working on a on a structured song you have a song and you want to make the best of it and we always would want to do that but it's not as open as it is to the sort of accidents and surprises that you get when you're uh you know when you're improvising and especially with you know with modular you know you you, you get a patch, you get a nice sound, but then, you know, you modify that and sometimes uh, it changes completely. I mean, I, you know, I would get maybe say I'd get a, a sequence of some description and Gareth might say, hey, why don't you just uh, put that down an octave? <laughs> and, uh, oh, yeah, we could do that. And then it, it changes the whole the whole vibe and the whole, you know, process. And that, that kind of thing, you can't really do that much on a, on a, structure, on a structured basis. And, and I guess also as well is that there's must be much less ability to second guess yourself as well with a constructed song. You know, there's always this kind of idea of, you know, you're, you're building something that you want to perhaps optimize. And if you go into the wrong state of second guessing yourself, you know, you kind of get to that thing of like visioning what the song should be rather than what you're actually with at the time is that is that kind of state of being in the moment i guess important to you when you're working on sunroof yeah it's definitely about you know listening to each other and and you know you know we start the project to start the session we don't really talk about oh let's do a fast song or let's do a slow song or let's do a whatever we just start patching and when we come up with you know listening to each other as we patch and at a certain point we go okay let's let's record it and then we play you know then during the recording time we just play around with what we've got and um I don't know, that's pretty much how it works it, it is very very much about uh being being in the moment i think there's a mm. it's not uh i mean it's, it's not some we don't make a great drama out of it but but because the recording sessions are relatively short, there is a, like a, a five to ten minute gap where we're not, I'm, I'm, we're not think, I'm not thinking about anything else at all. I'm just mm. I'm in, immersed in this sound field thing that we're making, and I'm responding to what I'm hearing in, in a way that's not considered really. I mean, I guess it's a 50-year journey getting to the point where i'm not considering i don't mean to say that i'm naive but i'm not i'm i'm not planning anything somehow so there there is a it is a it is a flow state mm. i was going to actually that was going to bleed into my next question actually i had flow state written here and it's quite interesting because it's, it's something that i always observe in in djs when djs play really that moment when they kind of crystallize with with the dance floor and everything kind of merges together a bit. And I was kind of wondering how that um, works between the pair of you in terms of like, do you 
is there a way that you can kind of tell when you're both in flow state? Yeah, I mean, I guess when we get to the moment where we feel it's time to press record, we're in some kind of state of, I don't know whether it's flow state or whatever you want to call it, but it's a point at which we, we're in a, I don't know, a mental space or whatever you want to call it. Where, it, And there's nothing that defines that. You know, it's not like, you know, I've got to get the drums right or, the, or we've got to get the bass line right or whatever. It's just like, okay, this is the moment. And then you just press record and go. And, you know, modular synthesis, I think it's probably more when I'm on my own, but also when we're together, is a kind of meditative state, you know, mm. because you hear something and then you, it's, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great process. You know, you're patching, you're putting leads in, you're making connections with voltage and you're kind of connected to the voltage in a way, not in a physical way, but in a, in a mental way. And, uh, you know, especially, especially when I'm on my own, if I'm in the studio in the evening, I can just listen to one thing for hours without really realizing that I'm listening to it for hours, you know, and then think, and at the end of it, I kind of wake up and I go, actually, that wasn't great. I'm not going to bother recording it. But at the, in the moment, <laughs> at the at that moment, it was great, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I've definitely had those kind of experiences myself where I've just let arpeggiators just run and run and Exactly. Um, you sort of mentioned it a little bit earlier on about like when you both met um, in Shoreditch at the time, and this is like going back forty years or so. And I was wondering if you could sort of fill me in a little bit about like why you both met and what was going on at the time. Well, we were preparing. Uh, when I say we, me, me and the band Depeche were preparing. You know, our third, the third album together. We'd been working in a really lovely studio uh, called Blackwing Studios for the first two albums. But we decided that we wanted to change of, you know, a, a view, basically. And I'm not quite sure how. I think we just, we, we, we were looking around different studios and we found the garden, and which was owned by John Fox, as Gareth mentioned earlier. And it was so different in its design and it's, you know, there was daylight. You, that was unthinkable in those days. You know, now every studio wants to have daylight. But those days, it had daylight it was it didn't have hessian on the walls it was well equipped it was just a good vibe and but we needed an engineer to work with us and john john fox recommended gareth because gareth had worked with john uh, on a number of projects including building the studio i think that's that's right gareth yeah yeah and uh he worked on, with john on metamatics so john knew him well and so we met Gareth and at our old offices and seemed to have a very similar kind of approach to processes. You know, mm. he wasn't, you know, a conventional engineer in the sense of, well, you know, he was very open to experimenting, uh, experimental processes. And, and then we just, and then soon after that, we started working in the studio. And uh, f for me, I, I was very much a, um, beginner and uh, so and i had a beginner's mind which is a wonderful state of mind that knows no boundaries you know i didn't know the right way to make a record i mean uh, daniel and the band had already uh, made a, 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 a two albums as depeche and other daniel had obviously worked on other albums they kind of knew about song structures and radio edits and all kinds of things that i really didn't have a clue about at the time and I was lucky enough that my my beginners, my my Zen beginners mind state that knew no boundaries, kind of mapped into uh, what uh, what uh, Daniel and the band were. Not, well, I don't know if they were looking for it, but they enjoyed it. Mm. They, they enjoyed the uh, and 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 I certainly enjoyed their experimental mindset as well. It was very, you know, in a way we. Sunroof could be called experimental electronic music improvisations. Mm. I was thinking this morning. I mean, it's obviously a bit long, but uh, <laughs> I think my my relationship with Daniel's always been rooted in in experimenting. I, certainly, at the time, I I felt we were doing experimental pop. Mm. Um, you know, uh, and and the Sunroof project, the the the, the seeds of it started back in the early 80s in the evening in the studio uh, after the, the band had gone home daniel and i would often 
like muck about uh, as a, as a kind of a decompression thing or as a, just for a bit of fun, really, you know, the, the band would leave, get the train, go home and we'd be sitting there and, and Daniel would play with a synth and I'd play with the effects and suddenly an hour and a half would have gone by and we, we never recorded any of this stuff, but in, in a way that was, that was the genesis of our experimental uh, improvisatory approach. And so it had this very, very long gestation between that and then I think it was at 97 with the, the, the can remix. Was that the first sort of recorded, outward recorded sunroof moments? No, it wasn't actually. Okay. I think the, it's hard to remember. I think the first one was the um, um, pitch up something five. Japanese five, yes. Artist. Pizashi, uh, I, I I have problem pronouncing that as well. It's it's yeah. Maybe I'll robotically overdub the the name. <laughs> yeah, okay. But I think that was that was the first one we did, Gareth. Right? I think it was. Yeah, mm. yeah. And then we did a, quite a few in fair, reasonably short succession, including the Can remix, um, Toro Coco wrote remix. Um, Goldfrat, Gold yeah, yeah Goldfrat remix. Um, we did a kind of a Noi cover version as well. Yeah, with uh, Andrew Conway from AC Maria's. Yeah, that was for a compilation. Um, yeah, so we did quite a few at a certain point. And we did, in the same kind of period, as after I'd moved back to Berlin, Daniel and I started seeing more of each other in his studio in Abbey Street. Mm. And... We did a whole bunch of Abbey, what we called Abbey Street sessions that, yeah. that were long. Uh, they were the length of the ADAT tape that we had in the tape recorder, so about 40 minutes. And, mm. and uh, that, they, that was, again, a pure improvisation sessions where we just, it, partly, actually, it, was a, it came out of a process of helping to set up the studio at the time. Mm. It, but... but um, so, so that was like baby steps towards what we, we're now doing. And because of, the, you know, when you were saying when you first got together, there was, a, um, you know, you were recording in the evenings and, and, and sort of playing together in the evenings. Was there a point where it wasn't initially something you were even talking about releasing? You know, was, there, was it more, was there a point where you felt like we should start putting this out? Yes, but it was, it was that we didn't, that was not, not even a thought in our mind at the time. Mm. But more recently, that's really what happened. It's like we were off to go and see a, um, uh, a concert. And I think we, I was in your studio, Gareth, and we just start, we're just mucking around. And I think you said, I think it came from you, we're, all, we're getting on, we should try and release some of this stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, I was, a bit, I, I was a bit more brutal than that. I think I said, uh, are we actually going to put a record out before we die? Yeah, <laughs> it was, was pretty. Be, was it was pretty polite. full on, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah. in a very friendly way, we were just walking to the Barbican. I think we were going to Ligeti concert at the Barbican, yeah, and we spent the afternoon yeah. in in this little shed here in Shoreditch. And at that point, you know, it's kind of a downtime project made by a, a couple of hobbyists. Really, we didn't aim a label or anything like that. No, that's right. We <laughs> but we yeah, did have one true. idea, which because are based on our experience in the nineties doing the so-called Abbey Street sessions which are on soundcloud somewhere we, we thought oh whatever we do we mustn't do make these pieces too long because mm -hmm. if we make them too long it's going to take us days and days to edit them and we will never get it together so one of the early things we realized was i mean we tried to say f five minutes but you know every, every improvisation we we've done really <clears throat> we we aim at doing like between five and ten minutes occasionally mm. there's an overrun because we're in the zone, as you said, and it just goes. But 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 really, we're quite brutal. We we might like look at the uh, the the clock or or, or the the timer on the DAW and go, like, look, that's seven minutes. Time to stop. And then we kind of somehow make it stop, you know, because we're we were both um, terrified of the amount of time it might take us to edit edit these if if they were like an hour and a half jams. Yep. And yeah, and it's part of course of the editing. Not wanting to edit was also is a very important part of it. Also, but also, you know, all these things, whether it's five minutes long or forty minutes long, they have a flow. Mm. And if you if you start editing that, then the, the the flow doesn't work anymore. You know, I mean, the listener might not notice that, but we would, I think. 
So to make a five minute or seven minute flowing piece that, that moves that moves through time in real time is also, I think, pretty important. Mm. Yeah, because it's, I guess with, um, there's always some, some, this kind of idea that improvisation, that I think some people think that it's just all random chaos and, and somehow alchemized out of that by the, you know, the, the, by the, the people making it. But, you know, as you mentioned there, having certain kinds of structure in place kind of allows the, the, the sunroof to, to emerge. Do you, are there any other kind of, obviously you can't reveal everything you know but like are there any other sorts of things that you sort of feel that they're, they're always they're really really important in terms of you know laying down that kind of principle so stuff can kind of emerge out of it um there are no secrets that's for sure mm. um uh very happy to share anything that we can but we made a few kind of rules uh yeah that. i mean Here's the manifesto that we uh, oh, wrote at the beginning of the uh, yeah. the beginning of the first album. I'll say Sorry, to listeners. Karen. I'll say to listeners. There was a yes. There was a, a actual handwritten manifesto there. And well, you can mention some of the things you got it in front of you, Gareth. Okay, I'll be very, I'll be very brief. The, we had the time limit thing, which was, mm -hmm. but the, uh, the, and for, we were also keen to work in different locations to uh, to to uh, keep things fresh for us. Because we're only like with two little, with two like a modular case each, really. Mm -hmm. Just we can kind of do it anywhere. And oh, I mean, I don't, don't need to go through the whole. <laughs> we we also for the first. I mean, obviously, we're talking about the second record now, so it's a bit the difficult second album. But but the the first album we did determine at the beginning that we would make a body of work that we would consider to be a record. That, so we went into it determined that somehow within the year, I think we said or. Uh, six months or a year we would have a body of work that we felt was somehow complete so that that was a concrete aim that we put in front of each other and the other major thing that we still stick to now uh is to to do quite short sessions so so that we so that we 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 come into the session we build the patches we listen to each other we have a cup of tea perhaps and and we record and I can't remember if this was this was in the manifesto or not, but something we still we doing, you know, we we continue to do is we don't talk about what we're going to do. Mm. We, there's no discussion about anything, and we come and without any patches. So the you know we're starting from scratch every time. There's no uh, no pre-patching or anything like that. So that's that's i can't remember if that was in the manifesto but that's definitely an important part of the process for us which is totally opposite to sort of like a lot of times when bands form and then there's so much kind of conceptualization that goes on in the pub or in rehearsal rooms beforehand to sort of come up with the vision <laughs> well we might we, there might be a bit of conceptualization generally that goes on but not about that's more about the process rather than what the music should sound like Mm. And it could be in a pub. It could be in uh, a nice Japanese takeaway or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I wanted to ask you a little bit more about um, the development of the, your, your relationship, working relationship uh, through the eighties and nineties as well, if that's okay. And and the role that Hansa Studios played in it, because I, I hear living in Berlin, like when I listen to some of those records, like there's little bits that will catch me off guard that seem to have captured in even you know like years later my experiences in berlin like there's a sort of there's a kind of a darkness of going through Kotbusator, uban the the platforms as you go out you know uh, uh, that kind of it just captures something of the atmosphere and i don't know whether that's just been implanted into me by my relationship that exists with the records or whether they've somehow kind of you know just through being in that time and place you've you, they've oozed into the recordings uh, and I, I wanted to know if you you know looking back how you feel that Hansa informed and that time in Berlin informed those records for you well I mean on a uh, on a technical point rather than a kind of emotional or artistic point it was a, it, it was a very you know from a practice well first of all <coughs> there are a number of studios at Hansa Number of studio spaces, and we generally worked in the mix room, which for the time 
was you know kind of high, like super high tech. Um, there was there were studios in London, of course, as well, but um, because of economical reasons, it, it was a lot cheaper to work at Hansa. So that was a kind of basic thing. Um, but then we were a little bit later on. You know, we utilized the different spaces. So, for instance, we'd be in the mix room, but we'd put a PA in Studio Two, which is a legendary kind of legendary, you know, you know, birthday party U two kind of room, the huge hall, and we put put a PA in there and use it as an effect, so you know, so to speak, and get different spaces. We used all sorts of different spaces. I mean, I think at some certain point we took over almost the whole building. We used staircases. We'd use different rooms. Yeah, so. That was all from a kind of technical point was was really great, you know. And we were able to do that. Um, I mean, you know, we chose Berlin for various reasons. I, I was visiting the birthday party, who were also recording in Hansa, and Gareth. We would we were in between recording and mixing construction time again, and Gareth had gone back to Berlin to do some work, and he was in the mix room upstairs, and. He, you know, showed me around and he said, oh, "We should do. We should finish the album here." Blah blah blah. And he was a good salesman and um, spoke to the band, and they were all really up for it, being in Berlin for lots of different reasons. Um, and you know, that's 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 really how we got to work there. Um, and Gareth knew already knew the mix room really well, so that you know, that was very helpful. And we had the, there was a maintenance engineer. Um, What's his name, Gareth? Eddie Lehman. Eddie Lehman. And he was always, you know, we might blow an amplifier or something. So, oh, you English, you're always playing everything so loud. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, he was super helpful with everything, you know. Of course, he, uh, the the this legendary Berlin trilogy uh, that uh, that uh, Depeche made uh, was uh, only half made in Berlin. Mm. The, the 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 first half of each of those records was made in london mm. so for, for mm. us uh the the atmosphere was very i mean well i don't know for us i can't speak for the band really but for, for me mm. it was a the atmosphere was london and berlin mm. yeah. because so much of the of course we were recording right it's electronic music we record stuff right to the very end of the project but a, uh, but a lot of the tracking if you want to call it that happened mm. in london Mm. So, so a lot of the stuff that was on tape already was uh, came out of a, a London atmosphere. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I think I, I, I think the idea, the original idea, was that we would record everything in London and mix it in Berlin. Of course, mm. that recording never stops. And um, we, on all the three albums, I think we added quite a lot actually in Berlin. I mean, the basic tracks were there, but I think we we did a lot, so especially some of the more interesting sampling uh, ideas happened in berlin but yeah it's a definitely a mixture of london and, and london and berlin yeah and, and so 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 gareth you were living there at that point already by the time we we started to mix construction time i think i might have been living in berlin yeah mm. like I'm, I'm not exactly sure now of the, of the timeline but very much around that period yeah i'd i'd already moved to berlin uh, overwhelmed really by the atmosphere of the city and the incredible studio and uh, 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 some of the people I met. And where, whereabouts were you living? Do you remember the street? I lived in Potsdamer Straße. Ah, uh, it was not that far yeah. actually from, from the Hansa studio. I lived uh, on the corner of Lutzowstraße. Right. Lutzow Potsdamer in a Hinterhof. Uh, my, I think it was the first apartment I ever had to myself. Before that, I'd always lived in like shared houses, and so it was a lovely, lovely little module. A bass nice player friend of mine actually in a German band called Neon Babies. I mean, this goes way back. That was Inga Humper's band, or uh, uh, and uh, I don't know if it was her band, but she was in it. But he 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 found the apartment for me. Ah, that's quite near the, near the Ufer as well, isn't it? Yeah, but, and also the the. I think the, the kind of for both of you the, the idea of the uh, using the studio as an instrument has always sort of played a very very key role in in music you've been involved with, and I was wanting to know where if there were any points you can think of like really maybe as children where where you where something happened when you're listening to music where 
it didn't sound like it was made in the conventional way, you know, where, where you first were, perhaps came in contact with studio, the, stu- the instruments as a studio, studio as an instrument, sorry. Well, I mean, definitely when I was a kid hearing music that I'd never, the sound of which I'd never heard before, I don't think I was conscious of that it was made in, you know, the studio as an instrument, but obviously, not obviously, but the Doctor Who theme, the original Doctor mm-hmm. Who theme, was I loved that came from a different world and the early uh, Joe Meek records as well. Yeah, Joe Meek, also, absolutely. Me too. You know, um, I suppose those in terms of hearing sounds that were I'd never heard before were were, were those were important and um, and yeah, also just tuning into the re- weird French contemporary classical radio stations as well, just like on my little, little transistor. You know, not quite knowing if I was listening to music or listening to just the static, you know, mm-hmm. those kind of things. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, I think that, I, I mean, I wasn't conscious that it was using the studio and when I was about 11 or something, but, you know, mm. 10, 11, something like that. Yeah, I loved the Telstar as well. And uh, I was a, a great a classical music lover when I was a kid. And um, I, my, my youthful mind was blown by, um, uh, as, she was then Walter Carlos's switched on Bach mm. because I knew some of the originals as performed by an ensemble of acoustic instruments. And to hear this, uh, what is it like it's called, you know, directly injected Moog synthesizer into the mixing board, playing the melodies and rhythms that I was somehow vaguely familiar with was like an, an incredible experience for me. I thought, Oh look, electronic, that's all made with, electronics you know that's not i'd already started experimenting recording my friends acoustically with a tape recorder but this was like the the, there the sound sources were electronic you know so that was a totally different level i thought ah that was like a a, a door a door opened in in my perception i had the exact opposite reaction to switched on bach (laughs) i hope you're not listening wendy um (laughs) I was already starting to listen to a little bit of electronic music that was, I think, Switched on Bach came out in 69 or something like that. 68, 69, yeah. Yeah. I can't remember, but I thought, I knew, I'd heard about these electronic instruments, and I was already in my mind thinking that conventional music was getting very boring, you know, it felt like repeating itself. And then I heard that, and I thought, well, obviously, it's a, a technical, incredible technical achievement. But I thought with all that, those possibilities of sounds, why copy, you know, why do that and try and kind of recreate conventional sounds with a synthesizer when it could be so, so different? You know, I guess I, I, I can't remember the, I remember listening to Tonto's Expanding Headband, mm. which I think came, maybe came out around the same time, which was much more kind of, um, the process of been you know, the concept was much more experimental and things like um white noise by electric storm was it electric storm by white uh, noise yeah i i think With, of the united states of america as well yeah yeah context. yeah i wasn't familiar really at that point with people like Morton Sobotnik, who I absolutely think is amazing and was doing great things at that time but i wasn't aware of, of him at the time or Suzanne Chiani, or any of those like pioneers, which I obviously got to lo- learn here and love later. Thank you for that. Yeah, that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, just to round it off, I mean, what do you feel is it's a bit of a broad question, but like, what do you feel is is the sort of secret of a good collaboration, or what what do you feel that works between you, maybe like interpersonally between you both, that has meant for forty years you've collaborated in different ways and now we we have this kind of consistency with sunroof as well that's at least in the outside world you know coming out i think i don't know it's hard to say i think our sensibilities are really similar um i think you know what we well i mean learning especially about improvisation collaboration listening is listening to what the other person is doing is really crucial I mean, I, I'm sure Gareth has had the same conversation as I have with Ermin Schmidt from Cannes mm-hmm. and their early and kind of, let's say, classic albums were all improvised. Um, they were all recorded to, I believe, recorded to two-track tape and then edited down 
And he's, you know, and he always said it's just about listening to what everybody else is doing. And mm. I don't know if you want to expand on that, Gareth. I mean, we have different kinds of collaborations, you know. Sometimes mm. I work for Daniel as a record company, and that's a different kind of collaboration from Sunroof, of course. But in, in the Sunroof mm. context, there's a great deal of a trust and, and there's a, a there's a great deal of acceptance and there's um we we go into it very much with a non-judgmental approach mm. so that we don't mm. we we don't judge what we do uh we record it and then we revisit later mm. sometimes separately sometimes together we revisit later and then we have a listen to it and and when the heat of the moment is long past and we can't remember anything about it we enjoy it or or, or we don't um so 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 non-judgment is is a great uh, mm. skill that we we've learned to do as sunroof together where which enables us to freely make stuff um mm. and, and I, for me that's like very important too because if the critic is if i've got this giant critic on my shoulder going well uh, you're not Morton Sobotnik and Daniel's not mm. Suzanne Ciani, then we don't get very far, you know, because, or, you know, we're not Ralph and Florian or whatever, yeah. you know, then, then basically we don't switch our synthesizers on, you know, yeah. but if we, if, if, if we can get into this open, trusting, non-judgmental state, we are able to, to channel the cosmos and make some electronics that actually we quite enjoy afterwards <laughs> one of the things that was important i think slightly less on the new album but definitely on the first album where we didn't listen to it for a really long time for months mm. literally months afterwards we just put it aside and didn't listen to it and so when you open it up again and you hear it and you, you know it sounds like a different piece of music that you remember it being and it's 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 easier to, to to say whether you like it or not because when you're actually making the music, you, you know there are a lot of things around you that are influencing how you feel. They're not necessarily influencing the music, like oh, have I got a headache or a hangover or the weather's shit or I had an argument with somebody or blah blah. But when you actually listen to it a few months later, you, all that's gone. Mm. And and it's great because you don't know. I, I think Gareth's the same. I can't tell what I did. I can't tell what Gareth did on that piece. We just did it, you know. Yeah. And that's a really good feeling. Yeah. And it must be really nice to sort of like say, like, you can't tell what e what each other did. Is there's no mm -hmm. there, there's no sort of sense of competition, you know, um, exactly. when you're listening back. It's just a something yeah. that you did that's just come from somewhere. Yeah. And there's no ego involved and no yeah judgment it's just like is it do we like it or not really yeah. <laughs> as a piece of music but it was made by two blokes but we can't actually remember anything about the making of it you know <laughs> i think i don't think competitiveness has 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 a place in making art really mm. i don't think it's about i think it's about doing the best we can for us and then yeah. and then we, you know, then offering our work to the like shared canon, you know, somewhere in the shallow end, there is sunroof, you know, but I mean, it's not, we're not, it's not, a, when it's not a competition for, for us, either with each other or with the rest of the inc incredible electronic music makers of the last mm. hundred years. Mm. That's a lovely way to say it. I've, I, I definitely feel like in terms of my peer group and people I see, in my surroundings there's definitely a lot more kind of collective action happening whether it's uniform through uniformed collectives or just people being much more helpful in helping other people step up and share ideas or share equipment it definitely i i don't know if it's always been like that and just the surroundings i'm noticing it in now but it definitely feels like a way that art can advance rather than hmm particular egos necessarily can advance yeah and when we the few shows that we played live have generally speaking been in front of like-minded people shall we say who maybe are modular um, musicians or not but no and then and you know things can go wrong and things can sound great it's in live improvisation anything can happen but the people are really understanding of that and not judging they're not saying, oh, I just I saw so and so played the other day, and they were much better, or whatever. Mm -hmm. You never you never get that. Of course, back in the early Depeche days, there was a, a sense of competition, especially with the band, because you know 
against people like not against but competition you know with you know people like duran duran and spandau and frankie goes to hollywood and you know there was an element of well we you know they're, they're rubbish we can do better you know that <laughs> who's higher in the charts but that was part of the fun i don't think that necessarily trickled down to me and gareth when we were making the records we weren't listening to frankie goes to hollywood or or Duran Duran in order to make something better that better whatever that means than them I think we just made that did the best we could yeah and hope for the best <laughs> <laughs> uh, Daniel and Gareth thank you so much well thank you very much for inviting us okay so that's Daniel Miller Gareth Jones collectively sunroof thank you daniel thank you gareth thank you zoe miller for sorting that out yes this the the second sunroof album electronic music improvisations volume two is out already now um i hope you enjoyed listening to that um it's wonderful being back putting these these shows out um thank you thank you if you if you're a long-term listener and you've stuck around and you're listening again uh welcome if you're a newbie I hope you're having a lovely day. Um, Lost and Sound is proudly, genuinely proudly sponsored by Audio Technica. Audio Technica, a global but still family-run company that make headphones, turntables, cartridges, microphones, studio-quality yet affordable products because they believe that high-quality audio should be accessible to you all. You can get us stuff anywhere in the world, but wherever you like to listen, head on over to audiotechnica.com to check out all of their range of stuff. Right, that's it. Um, I'm right by a cafe. I, I feel like a another cappuccino with half a milk is waiting for me. Um, and I'll chat to you soon. Have a really, really, really lovely day. <laughs>